Chapter forty five, part two of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter forty five, part two. Philpot had by this time finished his bread and cheese, and, having taken a final draught of tea, he rose to his feet, and crossing over to the corner of the room, ascended the pulpit, being immediately greeted with a tremendous outburst of hooting, howling, and booing, which he smilingly acknowledged by removing his cap from his bald head and bowing repeatedly. When the storm of shrieks, yells, groans, and catcalls had in some degree subsided, and Philpot was able to make himself heard, he addressed the meeting as follows. Gentlemen, first of all, I beg to thank you very sincerely for the magnificent and cordial reception you've given me on this occasion, and I shall try to deserve your good opinion by opening the meeting as briefly as possible. And putting all jokes aside, I think we're all agreed about one thing, and that is that there's plenty of room for improvement in things in general. Hear, hear. As our other lecturer, Professor Owen, pointed out in one of his lectures, and as most of you have read in the newspapers, although British trade was never so good before as it is now, there was never so much misery and poverty, and so many people out of work, and so many small shopkeepers going up the spout as there is at this particular time. Now some people tells us as the way to put everything right is to have free trade and plenty of cheap food. Well, we've got them all now but the misery seems to go on all round us all the same. And then there's other people tells us that the friskal policy is a thing to put everything right. Hear, hear from Crass and several others. And then there's another lot that says that socialism is the only remedy. Well, we all know pretty well what free trade and protection means, but most of us don't know exactly what socialism means. And I say it's the duty of every man to try and find out which is the right thing to vote for and when he's found it out, to do what he can to help bring it about. And that's the reason we've gone to the enormous expense of engaging Professor Barrington to come here this afternoon and tell us exactly what socialism is. As I hope you're all just as anxious to hear him as I am myself, I will not stand between you and the lecturer any longer, but will now call upon him to address you. Philpot was loudly applauded as he descended from the pulpit and in response to the clamorous demands of the crowd, Barrington, who in the meantime had yielded to Owen's entreaties that he would avail himself of this opportunity of proclaiming the glad tidings of the good time that is to be, he got up on the steps in his turn. Harlow, desiring that everything should be done decently and in order, had meantime arranged in front of the pulpit a carpenter's sawing-stool, and an empty pail with a small piece of board laid across it, to serve as a seat and a table for the chairman. Over the table he draped a large red handkerchief. At the right he placed a plumber's large hammer, at the left a battered and much chipped jam-jar, full of tea. Philpot, having taken his seat on the pail at this table, and announced his intention of bashing out with the hammer the brains of any individual who ventured to disturb the meeting, Barrington commenced. Mr. Chairman and Gentlemen, for the sake of clearness, and in order to avoid confusing one subject with the other, I have decided to divide the oration into two parts. First, I will try to explain, as well as I am able, what socialism is. I will try to describe to you the plan or system upon which the cooperative commonwealth of the future will be organised. And secondly, I will try to tell you how it can be brought about. But before proceeding with the first part of the subject, I would like to refer you very slightly to the widespread delusion that socialism is impossible, because it means a complete change 
from an order of things which has always existed. We constantly hear it said that because there have always been rich and poor in the world, there always must be. I want to point out to you first of all that it is not true that even in its essential features the present system has existed from all time. It is not true that there have always been rich and poor in the world, in the sense that we understand riches and poverty today. These statements are lies that have been invented for the purpose of creating in us a feeling of resignation to the evils of our condition. They are lies which have been fostered by those who imagine that it is to their interest that we should be content to see our children condemned to the same poverty and degradation that we have endured ourselves. I do not propose, because there is not time, although it is really part of my subject, to go back to the beginnings of history and describe in detail the different systems of social organisation which evolved from and superseded each other at different periods, but it is necessary to remind you that the changes that have taken place in the past have been even greater than the changes proposed by socialists today. The change from savagery and cannibalism, when men used to devour the captives they took in war, to the beginning of chattel slavery, when the tribes or clans, into which mankind were divided, whose social organisation was a kind of communism, all the individuals belonging to the tribe being practically social equals, members of one great family, found it more profitable to keep their captives as slaves than to eat them. The change from the primitive communism of the tribes into the more individualistic organisation of the nations and the development of private ownership of the land and slaves and means of subsistence the change from chattel slavery into feudalism, and the change from feudalism into the earlier forms of capitalism, and the equally great change from what might be called individualistic capitalism, which displaced feudalism, to the system of cooperative capitalism and wage slavery of today. "'I believe you must have swallowed a bloody dictionary!' exclaimed the man behind the moat. "'Keep order!' shouted Philpot fiercely, striking the table with a hammer, and there were loud shouts of, "'Chair!' and chuck em out from several quarters. When order was restored, the lecturer proceeded. So it's not true that practically the same state of affairs as we have today has always existed. It's not true that anything like the poverty that prevails at present existed at any previous period of the world's history. When the workers were the property of their masters, it was to their owner's interest to see that they were properly clothed and fed. They were not allowed to be idle, and they were not allowed to starve. Under feudalism also there were certain intolerable circumstances. The position of the workers was, economically, infinitely better than it is today. The worker was in subjection to his lord, but in return his lord had certain responsibilities and duties to perform, and there was a large measure of community of interest between them. I do not intend to dwell upon this point at length, but in support of what I have said I will quote as nearly as I can from memory the words of the historian Froude. I do not believe, says Mr. Froude, that the condition of the people in medieval Europe was as miserable as is pretended. I do not believe that the distribution of the necessaries of life was as unequal as it is at present. If the tenant lived hard, the lords had little luxury. Earls and countesses breakfasted at five in the morning on salt beef and herring, a slice of bread and a draught of ale from a blackjack. Lords and servants dined in the same hall and shared the same meal. When we arrive at the system that displaced feudalism, we find that the condition of the workers was better in every way than it is at present. The instruments of production, the primitive machinery and the tools necessary for the creation of wealth, belonged to the skilled workers who used them, and the things they produced were also the property of those who made them. 
in those days a master painter a master shoemaker a master saddler or any other master tradesman was really a skilled artisan working on his own account he usually had one or two apprentices who were socially his equals eating at the same table and associating with the other members of his family it was quite a common occurrence for the apprentice after he had attained proficiency in his work to marry his master's daughter and succeed to his master's business in those days to be a master tradesman meant to be a master of the trade not merely some underpaid drudges in one's employment the apprentices were there to master the trade qualifying themselves to become master workers themselves not mere sweaters and exploiters of the labour of others but useful members of society in those days because there was no labour save in machinery the community was dependent for its existence on the productions of hand labour consequently the majority of the people were employed in some kind of productive work and the workers were honoured and respected citizens living in comfort on the fruits of their labour they were not rich as we understand wealth now but they did not starve and they were not regarded with contempt as are their successors of today. the next great change came with the introduction of steam machinery that power came to the aid of mankind in their struggle for existence enabling them to create easily and in abundance those things of which they had previously been able to produce only a bare sufficiency a wonderful power equalling and surpassing the marvels that were imagined by the writers of fairy tales and eastern stories a power so vast so marvellous that it is difficult to find words to convey anything like an adequate conception of it we all remember the story in the arabian nights of aladdin who in his poverty became possessed of the wonderful lamp and he was poor no longer he merely had to rub the lamp the genie appeared and at aladdin's command he produced an abundance of everything that the youth could ask or dream of with the discovery of steam machinery mankind became possessed of a similar power to that imagined by the eastern writer at the command of its masters the wonderful lamp of machinery produces an enormous overwhelming stupendous abundance and superfluity of every material thing necessary for human existence and happiness with less labour than was formerly required to cultivate acres we can now cultivate miles of land in response to human industry aided by science and machinery the fruitful earth teems with such lavish abundance as was never known or deemed possible before if you go into the different factories and workshops you'll see prodigious quantities of commodities of every kind pouring out of the wonderful machinery literally like water from a tap one would naturally and reasonably suppose that the discovery or invention of such an aid to human industry would result in increased happiness and comfort to everyone but as you all know the reverse is the case and the reason for that extraordinary result is the reason of all the poverty and unhappiness that we see around us and endure today it is simply because the machinery became the property of a comparatively few individuals and private companies who use it not for the benefit of the community but to create profits for themselves as this labour-saving machinery became more extensively used the prosperous class of skilled workers gradually disappeared some of the wealthier of them became distributors instead of producers of wealth that is to say they became shopkeepers retailing the commodities that were produced for the most part by machinery but the majority of them in course of time degenerated into a class of mere wage-earners, having no property in the machines they used and no property in the things they made. They sold their labour for so much per hour, and when they could not find any employer to buy it from them, they were reduced to destitution. 
whilst the unemployed workers were starving and those in employment not much better off the individuals and private companies who owned the machinery accumulated fortunes but their profits were diminished and their working expenses increased by what led to the latest great change in the organization of the production of the necessaries of life the formation of the limited companies and the trusts the decision of the companies to combine and cooperate with each other in order to increase their profit and decrease their working expenses the results of these combines have been an increase in the quantities of the things produced a decrease in the number of wage earners employed and enormously increased profits for the shareholders but it's not only the wage earning class that's being hurt for while they are being annihilated by the machinery and the efficient organization of industry by the trusts that control and are beginning to monopolize production the shopkeeping classes are also being slowly but surely crushed out of existence by the huge companies that are able by the greater magnitude of their operations to buy and sell more cheaply than the small traders the consequence of all this is that the majority of the people are in a condition of more or less abject poverty living from hand to mouth it is an admitted fact that about thirteen millions of our people are always on the verge of starvation the significant results of this poverty faces on every side the alarming and persistent increase of insanity the large number of would-be recruits for the army who have been rejected because they are physically unfit and the shameful condition of the children of the poor more than one-third of the children of the working classes in london have some sort of mental or physical defect defects in development defects in eyesight abnormal nervousness rickets and mental dullness the difference in height and weight and general condition of the children in poor schools and the children in the so-called better classes constitutes a crime that calls aloud to heaven for vengeance upon those who are responsible for it it is childish to imagine that any measure of tariff reform or political reform such as the paltry tax on foreign-made goods or abolishing the house of lords or disestablishing the church or miserable old-age pensions or a contemptible tax on land can deal with such a state of affairs as this they have no house of lords in america or france and yet their condition is not materially different from ours you may be deceived into thinking that such measures as these are great things you may fight for them and vote for them but after you've got them you'll find that they make no appreciable improvement in your condition you will have to slave and drudge to gain a bare sufficiency of the necessaries of life you will still have to eat the same kind of food and wear the same kind of clothes and boots as now your masters will still have you in their power to insult and sweat and drive your general condition will be just the same as at present because such measures as those are not remedies but red herrings intended by those who trail them to draw us away from the only remedy which is to be found in the public ownership of the machinery and the national organization of industry for the production and distribution of the necessaries of life not for the profit of a few but for the benefit of all that's the next great change not merely desirable, but imperatively necessary and inevitable. That is socialism. It is not a wild dream of superhuman unselfishness. No one will be asked to sacrifice himself for the benefit of others, or to love his neighbours better than himself, as is the case under the present system, which demands that the majority shall unselfishly be content to labour and live in wretchedness for the benefit of a few. There is no such principle of philanthropy in socialism which simply means that even as all industries are now owned by shareholders and organized and directed by committees and officers elected by the shareholders so shall they in future belong to the state that is the whole people and they shall be organized and directed by committees and officers elected by the community 
under existing circumstances the community is exposed to the danger of being invaded and robbed and massacred by some foreign power therefore the community has organized and owns and controls an army and navy who protect it from that danger under existing circumstances the community is menaced by another equally great danger the people are mentally and physically degenerating from lack of proper food and clothing socialists say that the community should undertake and organize the business of producing and distributing all these things that the state should be the only employer of labor and should own all the factories mills mines farms railways fishing fleets sheep farms poultry farms and cattle ranches under existing circumstances the community is degenerating mentally and physically because the majority cannot afford to have decent homes to live in socialists say that the community should take in hand the business of providing proper houses for all its members that the state should be the only landlord that all the land and all the houses should belong to the whole people we must do this if we are to keep our old place in the van of human progress a nation of ignorant unintelligent half-starved broken-spirited degenerates cannot hope to lead humanity in its never-ceasing march onward to the conquest of the future vain mightiest fleet of iron framed vain the all-shattering guns unless proud england keep untamed the stout hearts of her sons all the evils that i have referred to are only symptoms of the one disease that is sapping the moral mental and physical life of the nation and all attempts to cure these symptoms are foredoomed to failure simply because they are the symptoms and not the disease all the talk of temperance and the attempts to compel temperance are foredoomed to failure because drunkenness is a symptom and not the disease india is a rich productive country every year millions of pounds worth of wealth are produced by her people only to be stolen from them by means of the money trick by the capitalists and the official class her industrious sons and daughters who are nearly all total abstainers live in abject poverty and their misery is not caused by laziness or want of thrift or by intemperance they are poor for the same reason that we are poor because we were robbed the hundreds of thousands of pounds that are yearly wasted in well-meant but useless charity accomplish no lasting good because while charity soothes the symptoms it ignores the disease which is the private ownership of the means of producing the necessaries of life and the restriction of production by a few selfish individuals for their own profit and for that disease there is no other remedy than the one i have told you of the public ownership and cultivation of the land the public ownership of the mines railways canals ships factories and all the other means of production and the establishment of an industrial civil service a national army of industry for the purpose of producing the necessaries comforts and refinements of life in that abundance which had been made possible by science and machinery for the use and the benefit of the whole of the people yes and where's the money to come from for all this shouted crass fiercely here here cried the man behind the moat there's no money difficulty about it replied barrington we can easily find all the money we shall need of course said slyme who had been reading the daily ananias there's all the money in the post office savings bank the socialists could steal that for a start and as for the mines and land and factories they can all be took from the owners by force there'll be no need for force and no need to steal anything from anybody and there's another thing i objects to said crass and that's all this here talk about ignorance what about all the money what's spent every year for education 
You should rather say, what about all the money that's wasted every year on education? What can be more brutal and senseless than trying to educate a poor little hungry ill-clad child? Such so-called instruction is like the seeding in the parable of the sower, which fell on stony ground and withered away because it had no depth of earth. And even in those cases where it does take root and grow, it becomes like the seed that fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it bore no fruit. The majority of us forget in a year or two all that we learnt at school because the conditions of our lives are such as to destroy all inclination for culture or refinement. We must see that the children are properly clothed and fed and that they are not made to get up in the middle of the night to go to work for several hours before they go to school. We must make it illegal for any greedy, heartless profit-hunter to hire them and make them labour for several hours in the evening after school, or all day until nearly midnight on Saturday. We must foresee that our children are cared for as well as the children of savage races before we can expect a proper return for the money that we spend on education. I don't mind admitting that this here scheme of national ownership and industries is all right if it could only be done, said Harlow. But at present, all the land, railways and factories belong to private capitalists. They can't be bought without money, and you say you ain't going to take them away by force, so I should like to know how the bloody hell are you going to get them? We certainly don't propose to buy them with money, for the simple reason that there is not sufficient money in existence to pay for them. If all the gold and silver money in the world were gathered together into one heap, it would scarcely be sufficient to buy all the private property in England. The people who own all these things now never really paid for them with money. They obtained possession of them by means of the money trick, which Owen explained to us some time ago. They obtained possession of them by using their brain, said Crass. Exactly replied the lecturer. They tells us themselves that that is how they got them away from us. They call their profits wages of intelligence. While we have been working, they have been using their intelligence in order to obtain possession of the things we have created. The time has now arrived for us to use our intelligence in order to get back the things they have robbed us of, and to prevent them from robbing us any more. As for how it is to be done, we might copy the methods that they have found so successful. Ah, then you do mean to rob them after all cried Slime triumphantly. If it's true that they rob the workers, and if we're to adopt the same method, then we'll be robbers too. When a thief is caught having in his possession the property of others, it is not robbery to take the things away from him and restore them to their rightful owners, retorted Barrington. I can't allow this here disorder to go on any longer, shouted Philpot, banging the table with a plumber's hammer as several men began talking at the same time. There'll be plenty of tunner property for questions and opposition at the end of the oration when the pulpit will be thrown open to anyone as likes to debate the question. I now calls upon the professor to proceed with the second part of the horation, and anyone what interrupts will get a lick under the ear all with this, waving the hammer, and the body will be chucked out a bloody winder. Loud cheers greeted this announcement. It was still raining heavily, and so they thought they might as well pass the time listening to Barrington as in any other way. A large part of the land may be got back in the same way as it was taken from us. The ancestors of the present holders obtained possession of it by simply passing acts of enclosure. The nation should regain possession of those lands by passing acts of resumption. And with regard to the other land, the present holders would be allowed to retain possession of it during their lives, and then it should revert to the state to be used for the benefit of all. Britain should belong to the British people, not to a few selfish individuals.
As for the railways, they have already been nationalised in some other countries, and what other countries can do, we can do also. In New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Japan, and some other countries, some of the railways are already the properties of the state. As for the method by which we can obtain possession of them, the difficulty is not to discover a method, but rather to decide which of many methods we shall adapt. One method would be simply to pass an act, declaring that as it was contrary to the public interest that they should be owned by private individuals, the railway should henceforth be the property of the nation. All railway servants, managers and officials would continue in their employment, the only difference being that they would now be in the employ of the state. As to the shareholders, <laughs> they could all be knocked on the head, I suppose, interrupted Crass. Or go to the workhouse, said Slime, or to hell, suggested the man behind the moat. The state would continue to pay the shareholders the same dividends they had received on an average for, say, the previous three years. These payments would be continued to the present shareholders for life, or the payments might be limited to a stated number of years and the shares would be made non-transferable, like the railway tickets of today. As for the factories, shops and other means of production and distribution, the state must adopt the same methods of doing business as the present owners. I mean that even as the big trusts and companies are crushing by competition the individual workers and small traders, so the state should crush the trust by competition. It is surely justifiable for the state to do for the benefit of the whole people what the capitalists are already doing for the profit of a few shareholders. The first step in this direction will be the establishment of retail stores for the purpose of supplying all the national and municipal employees with the necessaries of life at the lowest possible prices. At first the administration will purchase all these things from the private manufacturers in such large quantities that it will be able to obtain them at the very cheapest rate, and as there will be no heavy rents to pay for showy shops and no advertising expenses, and as the object of the administration will not be to make profit but to supply its workmen and officials with goods at the lowest price, they will be able to sell them much cheaper than the profit-making private stores. The national retail service stores will be for the benefit of only those in the public service, and gold, silver or copper money will not be accepted in payment for the things sold. At first all public servants will continue to be paid in metal money, but those who desire it will be paid all or part of their wages with paper money of the same nominal value, which will be accepted in payment for their purchases at the national stores and at the national hotels, restaurants and other places which will be established for the convenience of those in the state service. The money will resemble banknotes. It will be made of a special, very strong paper, and will be of all value, from a penny to a pound. As the national service stores will sell practically everything that could be obtained elsewhere, and as twenty shillings in paper money will be able to purchase much more at the stores than twenty shillings in metal money would purchase anywhere else, it will not be long before nearly all public servants will prefer to be paid in paper money. As far as paying the salaries and wages of most of its officials and workmen is concerned, the administration will not then have any need of metal money. But it will require metal money to pay the private manufacturers who supply the goods sold in the national stores. But all these things are made by labour, so in order to avoid having to pay metal money for them, the state will now commence to employ productive labour. All the public land suitable for the purpose will be put into cultivation, and state factories will be established for manufacturing food, boots, clothing, furniture, and all other necessaries and comforts of life. All those who are out of employment and willing to work will be given employment on these farms and in these factories. 
in order that the men employed shall not have any work unpleasantly hard, and that their hours of labour may be as short as possible, at first say eight hours per day, and also to make sure that the greatest possible quantity of everything shall be produced, these factories and farms will be equipped with the most up-to-date and efficient labour-saving machinery. The people employed in the farms and factories will be paid with paper money. The commodities they produce will go to replenish the stocks of the National Service stores, where the workers will be able to purchase with their paper money everything they need. As we shall employ the greatest possible number of labour-saving machines, and adopt the most scientific methods in our farms and factories, the quantities of goods we shall be able to produce will be so enormous that we shall be able to pay our workers very high wages in paper money, and we shall be able to sell our produce so cheaply that all public servants will be able to enjoy abundance of everything. When the workers who are being exploited and sweated by the private capitalists realise how much worse off they are than the workers in the employ of the state, they will come and ask to be allowed to work for the state, and also for paper money. That will mean that the state army of productive workers will be continually increasing in numbers. More state factories will be built, more land will be put into cultivation, men will be given employment making bricks, woodwork, paint, glass, wallpapers and all kinds of building materials and others will be set to work building on state land, beautiful houses which will be let to those employed in the service of the state. The rent will be paid with paper money. State fishing fleets will be established and the quantities of commodities of all kinds produced will be so great that the state employees and officials will not be able to use it all. With their paper money they will be able to buy enough and more than enough to satisfy all their needs abundantly but there will still be a great and continuously increasing surplus stock in the possession of the state. The socialist administration will now acquire or build fleets of steam-trading vessels, which will of course be manned and officered by state employees, the same as the Royal Navy is now. These fleets of national trading vessels will carry the surplus stocks I have mentioned to foreign countries, and will there sell or exchange them for some of the products of these countries, things that we do not produce ourselves. These things will be brought to England and sold at the National Service stores, at the lowest possible price, for paper money, to those in the service of the State. This of course will only have the effect of introducing greater variety into the stocks, it will not diminish the surplus. And as there would be no sense in continuing to produce more of these things than necessary, it would then be the duty of the administration to curtail or restrict production of the necessaries of life. This could be done by reducing the hours of the workers without reducing their wages so as to enable them to continue to purchase as much as before. Another way of preventing overproduction of mere necessaries and comforts will be to employ a large number of workers producing the refinements and pleasures of life, more artistic houses, furniture, pictures, musical instruments, and so forth. In the centre of every district a large institute or pleasure house could be erected, containing a magnificently appointed and decorated theatre, concert hall, lecture hall, gymnasium, billiard rooms, reading rooms, refreshment rooms, and so on. A detachment of the industrial army would be employed as actors, artists, musicians, singers and entertainers. In fact, everyone that could be spared from the most important work of all, that of producing the necessaries of life, would be employed in creating pleasure, culture and education. All these people, like the other branches of the public service, would be paid with paper money, and with it all of them would be able to purchase abundance of all those things which constitute civilization. Meanwhile, as a result of this, the kind-hearted private employers and capitalists would find that no one would come to work for them, 
to be driven and bullied and sweated for a miserable trifle of metal money that is scarcely enough to purchase sufficient of the necessaries of life to keep body and soul together. These kind-hearted capitalists will protest against what they will call their unfair competition of state industry, and some of them may threaten to leave the country and take their capital with them. As most of these persons are too lazy to work, and as we will not need their money, we shall be very glad to see them go. But with regard to their real capital, their factories, farms, mines, or machinery, that would be a different matter. To allow these things to remain idle and unproductive would constitute an injury to the community. So a law would be passed, declaring that all land not cultivated by the owner, or any factory shut down for more than a specified time, would be taken possession of by the state and worked for the benefit of the community. Fair compensation will be paid in paper money to the former owners, who will be granted an income or pension of so much a year, either for life or for a stated period, according to circumstances and the ages of the persons concerned. As for the private traders, the wholesale and retail dealers in the things produced by labour, they will be forced by state competition to close down their shops and warehouses, first, because they will not be able to replenish their stocks, and secondly, because even if they were able to do so, they would not be able to sell them. This will throw out of work a great host of people who are at present engaged in useless occupations. The managers and assistants in shops of which we now see half a dozen of the same sort in a single street, the thousands of men and women who are slaving away their lives producing advertisements, for, in most cases, a miserable pittance of metal money, with which many of them are unable to procure sufficient of the necessaries of life to secure them from starvation. The masons, carpenters, painters, glazers, and all the others engaged in maintaining these unnecessary stores or shops will all be thrown out of employment, but all of them who are willing to work will be welcomed by the state and will be at once employed helping either to produce or distribute the necessaries and comforts of life. They will have to work fewer hours than before. They will not have to work so hard, for there will be no need to drive or bully because there will be plenty of people to do the work, and most of it will be done by machinery and with their paper money they will be able to buy an abundance of the things they help to produce. The shops and stores where these people were formerly employed will be acquired by the state, which will pay the former owners a fair compensation in the same manner as the factory owners. Some of the buildings will be utilised by the state as national service stores, others transformed into factories, and others will be pulled down to make room for dwellings or public buildings. It will be the duty of the government to build a sufficient number of houses to accommodate the families of all those in its employment, and as a consequence of this, and because of the general disorganization and decay of what is now called business, all other house property of all kinds will rapidly depreciate in value. The slums and the wretched dwellings now occupied by the working classes, the miserable, uncomfortable, jerry-built villas occupied by the lower middle classes and by business people, will be left empty and valueless upon the hands of their rack-renting landlords, who will very soon voluntarily offer to hand them and the ground they stand upon to the state on the same terms as those accorded to the other property owners, namely, in return for a pension. Some of these people will be content to live in idleness, on the income allowed them for life as compensation by the state. Others will devote themselves to art or science, and some others will offer their services to the community as managers and superintendents, and the state will always be glad to employ all those who are willing to help in the great work of production and distribution. By this time the nation will be the sole employer of labour and as no one will be able to procure the necessaries of life without paper money, and as the only way to obtain this will be by working, 
it will mean that every mentally and physically capable person in the community will be helping in the great work of production and distribution we shall not need as at present to maintain a police force to protect the property of the idle rich from the starving wretches whom they have robbed there will be no unemployed and no overlapping labour which will be organised and concentrated for the accomplishment of the only rational object the creation of the things we require for every one labour-saving machine in use today we will if necessary employ a thousand machines and consequently there will be produced such a stupendous enormous prodigious overwhelming abundance of everything that soon the community will be faced once more with the serious problem of overproduction to deal with this it will be necessary to reduce the hours of our workers to four or five hours a day all young people will be allowed to continue at public schools and universities and will not be required to take any part in the work of the nation until they are twenty-one years of age at the age of forty-five everyone will be allowed to retire from the state service on full pay all these will be able to spend the rest of their days according to their own inclinations some will settle down quietly at home and amuse themselves in the same ways as people of wealth and leisure do at the present day with some hobby or by taking part in the organization of social functions such as balls parties entertainments the organization of public games and athletic tournaments races and all kinds of sports some will prefer to continue in the service of the state actors artists sculptors musicians and others will go on working for their own pleasure and honor some will devote their leisure to science art or literature others will prefer to travel on the state steamships to different parts of the world to see for themselves all the things of which most of us have now but a dim and vague conception the wonders of india and egypt the glories of rome the artistic treasures of the continent and the sublime scenery of other lands thus for the first time in the history of humanity the benefits and pleasures conferred upon mankind by science and civilization will be enjoyed equally by all upon one condition that they shall all do their share of the work that is necessary in order to make all these things possible these are the principles upon which the cooperative commonwealth of the future will be organized the state in which no one will be distinguished or honored above his fellows except for virtue or talent where no man will find his profit in another's loss and we shall no longer be masters and servants but brothers free men and friends where there will be no weary broken men and women passing their joyless lives in toil and want and no little children crying because they are hungry or cold a state wherein it will be possible to put into practice the teachings of him whom so many now pretend to follow a society which shall have justice and cooperation for its foundation and international brotherhood and love for its law such are the days that shall be but what are the deeds of to-day in the days of the years we dwell in that wear our lives away why then and for what are we waiting there are but three words to speak we will it and what is the foeman but the dream strong wakened and weak oh why and for what are we waiting while our brothers droop and die and on every wind of the heavens a wasted life goes by how long shall they reproach us where crowd on crowd they dwell poor ghosts of the wicked city gold-crushed hungry hell through squalid life they laboured in sordid grief they died those sons of a mighty mother those props of england's pride they are gone there's no one can undo it nor save our souls from the curse but many a million cometh and shall they be better or worse 
It is we must answer and hasten and open wide the door for the rich man's hurrying terror and the slow-foot hope of the poor, yea, the voiceless wrath of the wretched and their unlearned discontent. We must give it voice and wisdom till the waiting tide be spent. Come then, since all things call us, the living and the dead, and o'er the weltering tangle a glimmering light is shed. End of chapter 45, part 2